I want to begin my sermon this morning by naming something. There, there's a tension in the air these days, so thick that you can taste it. It's felt like in recent years pressure has been building, and now just in the last few weeks, I'm sure you're like me, and you felt like we're sitting on a powder keg, a battle between right and wrong, good and evil, and a big fat man adored by millions, despised by millions more, is right in the middle of it all. You know who I'm talking about, right? War is coming, church. It's coming and we'd better be ready. I'm not talking about North Korea. I'm not talking about ISIS. I am talking about the war on Christmas. Yes, the war to end all wars. The war on sweet baby Jesus is back again. And we need all the soldiers we can muster, church. Maybe you're a skeptic, though. Maybe you think we have nothing to worry about. Well, I'll tell you something. I'm not a sheep. I'm a reindeer. And I will fight to protect my God-given right to smell like gingerbread for a month and put tinsel on everything in sight. Our Christmas freedoms are under attack. Don't believe me? Here's some facts that will blow your mistletoe in mind. Netflix. Netflix only has 275 Christmas movies and specials. If you watch them back to back, that is barely enough. 13 hours a day, it's barely enough to fill all 31 days we have until Christmas. And don't get me started on radio stations. Only five of our local stations are playing a constant barrage of Christmas tunes. And I could only find two radio stations that were brave enough to begin playing Christmas music in mid-November. I almost had to actually celebrate Thanksgiving. It was terrible. And speaking of Christmas songs, political correctness has finally taken over. I just heard this new song by some Jesus-hating communist named Bing Crosby telling me, Happy Holidays. Well, I don't know who this Bing kid is, but in my house, it's Merry Christmas. The war on Christmas is back, brothers and sisters, and you are either with baby Jesus or you're against him. Won't you join me in taking back our forgotten holiday? Who's with me? Now, if you are nodding along and agreeing with me during that rant, today is going to be a long sermon. I do think that there is a war on Christmas. I just don't think it's the one that's being sold to us by our 24-hour news networks. The war on Christmas is much more subtle and insidious than that. It's been in the works for decades, and if we aren't mindful of it, it has the capacity to rob us of our joy and fracture our faith. We sit this Sunday in the liminal space between Thanksgiving and Advent and I'd like us to ask a pertinent question. When we look at Advent, these four weeks approaching Christmas, when we consider the coming nativity, what do we see? And what are we thankful for? Are we thankful for presents, for the food, for family traditions? Will we simply be thankful when it's all done? None of those answers makes you a bad person. They're not sinful expectations. I love Christmas food and I love Christmas movies. But they're also not why Advent exists. 
and they offer us a dim glance at what could be a formative season in our annual life of faith. This morning, I'd like us to read from the beginning of the gospel according to John, as he introduces us to this person named Jesus in a potent, poetic way. John's gospel is unique in how he chooses to open his text. Matthew's gospel shows us a Christ who fulfills the Jewish prophecy of Messiah through lineages of Abraham and David. Luke shows us a Christ who is a common, low-born child visited by working-class shepherds and far-traveled foreigners. Mark shows us a man whom God names as a beloved son through baptism. But John, John does something different entirely. John's message of good news was for a Christian community that understood what it truly meant to be persecuted. Living in the turn of the first century in the ancient Roman Empire, John's Christian community was not only under threat of traditional Roman authorities, but also were under threat of the Jewish synagogue as they were in the process of breaking away from a tradition they had called home. This was a group of people who were hurt and lost and felt under attack from all directions. They are desperate for someone or something to guide them and give them hope. And so when John begins his gospel, he does so in a way that is starkly different from the other gospels in our Bibles. Jesus is not a king or even a baby or even the son of God. He is something more. Hear now the gospel according to John, beginning in the first verse. Let's rise as we're able for the reading of God's word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will or of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we've seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth, the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. When I was in college, I did what many Christian students do and began to wrestle with my faith. I knew that I was on board with Christ as a teacher and a moral leader, 
But I wasn't so sure I needed to believe in his divinity, if I needed to believe that Christ was really the Lord of my life. Something about teacher Jesus just seemed more palatable. Then I came across the writings of C.S. Lewis. When I was a child, I loved his Chronicles of Narnia books. But as a young adult, I began to read his other works like Mere Christianity. It was in that book that I came upon a passage that would at first frustrate me and then challenge me and finally leave me changed and more grounded in my faith than ever before. Lewis says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or, you, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. I later learned that C.S. Lewis was not the first person to argue this line of thinking. In the mid-1800s, a Christian preacher in Scotland named John Duncan articulated what he called the trilemma of Jesus. He said, Christ either, one, deceived mankind by conscious fraud, or two, was himself deluded and self-deceived, or three, he was divine. There is no getting out of this trilemma. It is inexorable. Working through this trilemma helped me address who Jesus was in my life and what he meant to me. John's gospel does something similar in the first five verses of his book. His claim is different than Matthew or Luke or Mark. For John, Jesus is not simply a king or a child or even simply the son of God. For John and his community, Jesus is everything. Jesus is this word. In the original Greek, logos, a philosophical term of the day that meant this perfect idea that humanity strived for but never could quite attain. The logos, the word, Jesus for John was perfection in the midst of persecution. He was light in the midst of darkness. He was life in the midst of death. He's victory in the midst of defeat. As we approach Advent this year, who is it that we wait for? I think this year I need to hear John loud and clear above even the other gospel traditions. And I need to remember from the start that Jesus is nothing to be trivialized. He's nothing to be contained or controlled. He is everything or he is nothing. The real war on Christmas is this idea that we are receiving something less than everything. 
That what we're receiving is gifts or traditions or warm feelings when the reality is we're about to receive again the victorious light of the world if we would receive it. This past week, Reagan and I hosted Thanksgiving at our home for the first time ever. Your prayers were coveted. Let me just say, as the one who did most of the cooking, thank God for whoever invented crock pots. Can I get an amen? I literally don't know how y'all did Thanksgiving before crock pots were invented. At one point, I had a few minutes to breathe in the kitchen. So I poked my head into the living room to see what everyone's up to. I see the, the dog show is on TV. No one's looking at the dog show. A room full of eight adults, all of them, looking at their phones. I felt like an old man. I said, y'all get off your phones. I yelled this at my parents and my in-laws. What is it with baby boomers and their electronics, am I right? (laughs) It doesn't matter what generation you're in, most people are suckers for distractions, yes? John knows this as a leader in the early Christian church, and he knows he is speaking to a group of people hungry for leadership and hope as they're under attack. And so in verses 6 through 9, he makes clear that no one but Jesus will offer what it is they need. John the Baptist, who he references, was a monumental leader in Jesus' day, so renowned, the Gospels tell us that Herod's wife asked for his head above all others, And yet John, the author of the gospel, is quick to begin his story by reminding the Christian community that nobody, not even John the Baptist, can offer them what Jesus can. I imagine this was a helpful reminder to a people who were quickly without a home who would have been easy prey for fast-talking, quick-fix, snake-oil types. I wonder how often in my own life I've been guilty of looking to distractions rather than rooting myself in Christ. How many Christmas seasons have been about everything other than receiving the incarnate God in Jesus? So let me ask you, what's your distraction this year? What is it that you can tell already is taking you away from seeing the light? Is it planning that elusive, perfect holiday season? Is it coveting after that one gift that will surely make you happy forever? Is it the anxiety of just trying to get through the next few weeks? The real war on Christmas wants Christmas to be about everything other than Christ. About cultural infighting. About commercialized greed. About anxiety-driven family calendars. None of that builds up the nativity. None of it draws us nearer to God's manger. Many times the greatest casualty in the war on Christmas is simply our attention. And the best part of distractions, you know what the best part is? They don't challenge us. Just like a mindless game on your smartphone. I know you've got your favorite one. Distractions leave us pretty much the way they found us every single time. But Jesus... Jesus always changes us. Jesus always challenges us. And so maybe we turn to distractions at Christmas time because it's honestly easier than receiving the incarnate God. Maybe it's easier than the challenges of Christ. 
John challenges us to be mindful of that which distracts us from Christ, no matter how good we think it might be. John the Baptist is not Jesus. No matter how good it is, it's not the light of the world. But maybe we know that Christ means everything, and maybe we know that distractions will leave us feeling empty year after year, but for whatever reason, we've lost that Christmas spirit over time. What do we do about that? I think the answer lies in a friend of mine named Elmo. Stay with me. I have a daughter. She's two years old. Her name is Andy. And she loves Sesame Street. Or, as she calls it, Elmo. Because it might as well be his show. (laughs) Every morning she asks for a banana. And she asks me to put on Elmo. Her first tantrum was in response to me daring to turn off Elmo. I'm pretty sure she would live on Sesame Street in Elmo's house if given the chance. This girl loves Elmo. Well, Andy is in for a surprise this Christmas because look at what she is getting. Her very own pair of Elmo slippers. She is going to lose her ever-loving mind. If you don't know Andy, if you've never seen her before, just look for the little girl wearing a dress and Elmo slippers the week after Christmas because I'm pretty sure she won't be taking these off for a while. But as much as she's going to love these shoes, one day she will outgrow them. And one day she'll outgrow her love of Elmo. He won't be part of her morning ritual anymore, not until she has a child of her own. But that's what we do, isn't it? We grow up. Those things that used to excite us so much as a child just don't excite us anymore. Didn't you ever receive a toy that you thought would make you happy forever? And how long did that last, really? Maybe a day, maybe a week, maybe a month, maybe a year. But at some point, that toy ended up in your closet or in your garage or in a garage sale You probably hadn't thought about it again until right this moment. Has baby Jesus ended up in our garage? Not the nativity set. I mean, has the excitement of Christ's birth got some dust on it in your life? Has he ended up relegated to a shelf in the garage, doomed to be a relic of childhood or Christmas past? What if we dusted off the incarnation? the arrival of Jesus Christ. And what if we began to see him the same way my daughter is going to see these slippers? What if instead of making Jesus into a child again this Christmas, we allowed ourselves to adopt a childlike spirit and grow in our excitement over our coming Savior? John says in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory The glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. Now, I know that sounds like something you've heard before, but that is some exciting news. You haven't seen monotony or boredom. You've seen his glory, the glory of God's only son, full of grace and truth. And what are we going to do about that? Go to brunch. Shop till we drop. Are we going to go through the same old, tired, dusty motions as always? The greatest weapon in the war on Christmas is taking what ought to be a life-giving season of the Christian calendar and turning it into a mess that sucks the life right out of us. 
The Christmas that the world is offering us is tired. It's the same old songs, the same old sales, the same old arguments, the same old worries, the same old frustrations, the same old, same old, same old. The Christmas that John offers us is the grace-filled truth that God knows you and God loves you and God is coming for you. That kind of grace-filled truth would change your life if you let it. And it ought to get your blood running. It ought to feel like light in the face of darkness. It ought to feel like life in the face of death. It ought to feel like victory in the face of defeat. I'm not sure what war on Christmas they're talking about on the news, but the one that I see is one of triviality and distraction and boredom. And to this, John says, I'd like to introduce you to Jesus. Jesus is everything. Jesus is Christ alone. And Jesus is coming for you. Would you like to meet him? Advent is here, church. Christmas is coming. And Jesus will change everything if you let him. Let him. Amen.